Welcome to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series, where throughout the world's greatest show at Expo 2020 Dubai, we'll be celebrating the best of the UK's creativity, innovation and culture, with special guests offering exclusive insight into ways we can innovate for a shared future. In this episode, host Nick DeLeon talks to Claire Lepiniere, a senior lecturer in textile design at De Montfort University with over 20 years of teaching experience. Claire has a particular focus on the studio practice of textile design and its intersection with the human and ecological impacts of textiles. Claire is a senior fellow of the Higher Education Academy and is passionate about inspiring the next generation of design activists who are able to analyse complex systems, understand leverage points and work for systemic change from within the fashion and textiles industries. You're listening to the Future Focus podcast series with me, Nick DeLeon from the Royal College of Art. In What Will We Wear? and this series, I'm going to be in conversation with representatives from across the fashion sector. My guests include a model, a designer, an innovator in retail, and an academic, and, and we'll be exploring the transformation of the fashion industry for a really prosperous and effective shared future. Today, I'm with Claire Lepiniere, Senior Lecturer in Textile Design at De Montfort University. Our topic is what comes around, goes around, and the world of circular fashion. Claire, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here. I'm so happy to be here. I love this topic. Claire, tell me a little bit about your journey into the world of fashion and textiles and that moment of epiphany about transforming the fashion system to a more circular model. So my background is very kind of traditional in many respects. I went to art college. I studied at undergraduate level at Chelsea College of Arts. I did textile design. I went into the industry. I went into interior textiles, actually. And I very quickly realized that part of the area that I enjoyed most was kind of supervising and managing and, and directing. And um, this led me uh, kind of gradually into teaching and into academia. And I found particularly the idea of um, sharing creativity and being in this wonderful kind of studio environment so fascinating and, and so invigorating and working with the next generation designers was wonderful. But what was kind of increasingly happening was, and I'm going back, I've been teaching for 21 years, so going back sort of 15, 16, 17 years, was we were really interested in preparing students for industry and um, getting them to make the most, you know, wonderful representatives of their creative vision. But there was, a, a to me, there felt like a disconnect because we were starting to see more and more about the uh, degrading aspects of the, the industry for the environment, for the social welfare, for the, the people in the industry. And there I was in the studio, you know, saying, make more, create more, do this, have your vision. You know, why stop at one thing? Why not make 10 things? And it, it just seemed, it just seemed so disconnected. And I, I really struggled with that for a long time because a lot of the debates in the kind of early 2000s around um, sustainability and ecology and fashion and textiles were, were quite minimal in, in some respects. And I, I did have a kind of epiphany where I was thinking, well, I'm a whole person. I'm not just a design lecturer. I'm also a consumer. I'm also a, you know, training the next um, generation of textile designers. What would happen if I train the next generation of design activists? So people who are ready to work for a systematic paradigm change within the fashion and textile industry but from within. And that was something that was really exciting to me. And also, I'm sure your students were aware of it, or if not, you brought it very much into their field of view that this is an industry that has 
very, very significant environmental impacts right now, um, both in the way we produce and consume fashion, and especially fast fashion. Um, you know, I, I was looking at the scale of the fashion industry and seeing it's kind of three and a half trillion dollar industry. I mean, this is big as the GDP of Germany globally. But it was also so surprising to see it's the second most polluting industry on the planet right now. So I, I, I'm, I'm assuming that part of this must have been both in your field of view and also something you either made your students aware of or they were bringing to you as well. Yes, absolutely. And I think what's really exciting about being in this this kind of space at the minute is the, the sense that in academia, we don't have in, all the answers. And in industry, we don't have the answers. And in government, we all don't have all the answers. We, we have to kind of join and, and go on this journey together. And what I found quite quickly um, and looking through some of the ways in which we teach. So my uh, teaching philosophy is very much kind of centered around education for sustainable development. And that's where you give students the materials to make decisions for themselves, because there's only so much you can do in terms of transmitting to students. You have to transform students. And that involves them. That involves them identifying their values and what they care about. And it's really interesting to kind of see students when you say, well, look, these are the issues. And it's very depressing. You're looking at things like, you know, that there's 400 billion square meters of fabrics are made every year. And most aren't designed to consider their end of life. Um, if we look at some of the figures, we're looking at uh, fashion, footwear and apparel emissions are four metric gigatons, which is the impact of the entire EU. So some of these these figures are so huge and overwhelming, but actually, if we all make a little bit of a difference, we can make a huge difference. And it's kind of enabling students and empowering students with a, a kind of a vision of what do you care about and how can you go out and transform that industry for yourself? I suppose one of the challenges of, uh, for being a student, and again, uh, as working at the Royal College of Art, I have my all the students that I work with there as well. And, and you know, they often feel a little powerless when it comes to the, the major corporations that are, uh, and the complexity of the systems they're dealing with. I mean, I was looking at, you know, Nike, it's worth $258 billion, you know, um, Inditex or Zara, you know, 92 billion euros. It's all trumped by the Louis Vuitton Moe. Ennessy group at 340. These are great leviathan mm -hmm. that, that need to change. But we as consumers, of course, have power. So, so what do you think can be the role of the, the textile designer, the, the creative elements that both of us are so focused on, as well as those industry partners? Um, what can we do to amplify and give them the tools they need to go and really make an impact? I think designers are creative at their hearts. They're artists with a vision. And I think we have to really kind of tap into that. There's so much that we do that's really designing for emotional experience, for enchantment, um, for a lifelong relationship with clothes. And actually, you know, the more that I educate my students where we look at how much water goes into a garment, is it about 3,000 litres of water that's gone into that garment? How much energy has gone into that garment? Um, you know, how much time and expertise and how many people have touched that, you know, garment across its entire supply chain? And when you actually start to think and value that in the way that we value things like food and the relationships that we have around us, that's when you can start to make these changes of thinking, well, how can I treat this as something precious, as a precious resource and not just as something that's disposable? So it's really about thinking around the lifelong service of that garment. If it was a person, what would their personality be? What would they be bringing to my life? What is my relationship with that garment? I suppose that kind of leads us nicely into the kind of this sense of circularity as well. Yeah. 
the relationship that we have from the consumer end of things, but also from the production side to look at how those precious resources that are being used can be managed and, and managed in such a way that they, as, you, as we have in the title of this, what, what comes around goes around. We can keep on using them and reusing them as part of it. Can you tell us a little bit about the circular economy and how that relates to fashion? So the circular economy is really kind of grounded in nature. And the idea is that it's, it's kind of biomimetic in that it's really focused on the processes and, and kind of approaches that we see in a, a natural world. So when you're thinking about a circular economy, another word for that is a cradle-to-cradle economy or closed-loop economy. You're really seeing all waste is nutrients for new products, um, whether these nutrients are like the nutrients that could be used for enriching soil to grow crops or wider definition of nutrients, which is the materials or ingredients which can become a new product. So a direct comparison would be something like a woodland or a forest where plants take nutrients from soils grow, they decay, they feed the next generation. And a circular economy is designed to be restorative and regenerative by design. In order to kind of understand that, we have to understand that most of what we have, the vast majority, 99% of textiles, only 1% globally are, are actually recycled or reused as new products. 80% of textiles are sent directly to landfill. Only 1% are ever recycled. So we're designing a system with um, a circular economy that keeps material resources in use. So we're not throwing these away, wasting them. And then we recover the materials at the end of the life to make new products, which are high value. So we're not recycling in the way that you're, you're creating a product that has a poorer value. For instance, often if you traditionally shred and recycle cotton, the fibers become shorter and they're not as high quality as, as virgin cotton. It's creating new high quality fibers at the end of that production for a new high quality garment. We live in a world where there are clear future limits to growth, not just because of the resources, but because of changing demographics. The world's getting older and older people don't buy as much stuff because they've already got it. So there need to be new models for value creation and value capture in a world that's not just powered by this economic growth model. What do you think those might be and what do you think the circular economy has to offer? So... One of the, um, the issues around, obviously, having infinite growth on a finite planet, of course, is that we will run out of resources. And there have been lots of different uh, models of how we're kind of moving away from certain fibers towards other fibers. So within sort of 20, 30 years, some of the predictions are that perhaps 90, 95% of new fibers will be polyester. And we don't have anything to do with um, those in terms of, you know, that's almost none of that is being recycled. So we're kind of rapaciously switching from, from one fiber to another as a way of outrunning some of the planetary boundaries and planetary limits. And I think circularity, where we have the opportunity to keep materials and um, fibers and energy and other um, inputs into the circular economy in circulation for longer and potentially infinitely, is a way in which we can then maybe capture some of the value in those materials. If we're talking about, you know, as you were saying, a $3 trillion industry, if we can capture some of that inherent value in those materials, is there a way in which we can have conversations around some of the gains that we make about um, the capsule gains of these, about the a just transition for the workers in the supply chain? 
We talk a lot about moving production back to Europe and moving production nearer the customer, which is great in terms of you know low footprints. But I worry about those garment workers in Bangladesh, those garment workers in Vietnam, and, and what are the opportunities that the circular economy. So we really need to have an honest conversation about the people and the social aspects of what the circular economy is inclusive and it's considering all the people across the supply chain and really kind of bolstering global workers and not just another way of creating um, wealth for people who are, quite frankly, already wealthy. There must be many different places then in this to to start to think about where to intervene as a, uh, a textile designer or a textile company, thinking about how to make more effectively and looking at the, the manufacturing cycle for the, uh, for the yarns and the textiles that emerge from it um, to come up with better solutions. You know, I was reading seven and a half thousand liters of water for a pair of jeans. Mm. And the fact that in the Ganges Valley, you're seeing the water table is dropping so rapidly because of the use of water yes. by the textile industry, that it's affecting not just the local economy, but it's affecting agriculture and so many other areas and, and creating population shifts. So th th I assume there are many different places where we can intervene in the material cycle, as well as in the kind of cycle of goods, the production, the consumption as well. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's really, it's quite an interesting um, development, this idea towards a circular economy, because it's not something that is just going to be the huge companies and the huge brands and these kind of like, you know, the, the Vuitton groups and these conglomerates of fashion, these kind of massive powerhouses. There's also a space for kind of small SMEs and, um, you know, designers running very small labels. So it's a really interesting that you can have influence and impact across the sphere, depending on you know where you are in that kind of hierarchy or in that that kind of scale of the industry. So in production and manufacturing, um, what we're thinking about is something like zero waste. So aiming to eliminate value which you lose through wasteful energy, material waste, wasteful use of water. And some very kind of forward-thinking companies are thinking, well, we've got a huge land footprint in our factories. Textile factories are massive. Fashion factories are massive. You know, if we're in a, a country with a lot of sun, a lot of, you know, natural daylight, why don't we put solar panels? And it's just, it's, it can be really simple little interventions, but it really requires a designer to look at every part of their supply chain. And of course, the first step for that is knowing what your supply chain is, that kind of supply chain transparency that the Fashion Revolution um, organization have been so key in developing the kind of leverage for the, the purpose of that. And it's really thinking about all the different ways on that supply chain that you can make a difference from the very initial selection of materials right through to the end. You know, the way that we do it at the minute is we create a garment and think, well, how am I going to recycle this? And actually, we need to reverse that. We need to start with the materials and with the fibers that we're selecting and saying, what do I envisage as being the next stage of this garment's life once it's finished? Where will it go and what will it become? And do you think that um, is something that companies, you know, particularly some of these larger organizations are taking on board? Because I assume this is a very fast churning world. We've seen so many of the incumbents in other sectors uh, be challenged by new and emergent companies that are more in tune, if you like, with the, um, uh, the mood of the markets, um, the consumer trends and patterns, and also perhaps more adept at using some of these technologies as well that are emerging. Um, so do, do you see examples of, of, of this happening right now, this, um, this analysis of every element of that supply chain? I just wonder if you might be able to share with us some of those. 
small companies, you've got, you know, designers such as Phoebe English and, um, you know, she's really dedicated and just looking at things like how do I reduce things like plastic hangers? How do I reduce packaging? How do I use dead stock in my uh, production methods? Uh, Comet Chakra of uh, Glow and Sea, she's got her beautiful sustainable um, knit accessories for bicycling with the luminescent threads. She's thinking about the social impact of her production and how can she make a difference in terms of the lives of, of refugee women, of black women, of women um, in the developing world through her production. In academic sense, you know, I'm part of Textiles, Engineering and Materials. That's our uh, research group. And we've got one of our recent graduates who's now a university lecturer in Thailand. She was working in the industry and she came to us saying, I just don't like the impact is the local impact on the, you know, the rivers that I see. I want to work to change this. And she worked with, again, another biomimetic process working with enzyme technology to develop a coloration technique. Her name's Nalene Nethakamagor. I strongly recommend you look at her work. She won the highly commended in the RSA Student Design Awards last year. And she also won a Green Gown Awards for Best uh, Student Research with Practice. So I was really, really proud of her work. But what was interesting was she was able to get an entire gamut from red to uh, green and blue to orange. So right across the color spectrum using enzymes, which were based from fungi. And they naturally break down. Not only did she produce this color without synthetic dye stuffs, what was really fascinating was that she could color wool at room temperature. So she didn't need additional heat. Whereas wool, as we all know, normally needs to be boiled for an hour at 100 degrees Celsius. So it's a huge greenhouse gas emissions. So there's all these little kind of pilots and little ways of working that have huge potential if we have the vision as an industry to really embrace what some of those technologies and also just different ways of thinking can be. Coming back to different ways of thinking as well, I mean, I, I always think how the UK is right at the very forefront of, of this and has been for, you know, certainly since the Industrial Revolution. I, I can think particularly back about 170 years ago, which was the um, 1851 and uh, W.S. Atkins coming up with Movine, the first synthetic dye in the world. He was a 19-year-old, I, I guess, you know, uh, and, and the British Dye Corporation, <laughs> which then kind of led the world in synthetic dyes. And he was trying to synthesize quinine, wasn't he? He was trying to yeah. with the malarial uh, treatment. Well, I always think of it as being also, he was trying to improve a gin and tonic, you know, as well as part <laughs> of this, <laughs> by producing the quinine for the tonic water. Um, but, uh, you know, he was at Imperial College, which, by the way, I, I, um, <laughs> I'm a graduate and did my postgraduate in Imperial as well. So very close there and worked there. Um, but, uh, you know, we've got this fascinating kind of confluence of science and technology which exists in the UK with the world of the arts and design. I, I think it's an extraordinary combination that is very rare. And, and we've had some real thought leaders. So it was interesting hearing about some of the companies that you described just now. Uh, and and those that ability to take a, a, a technological innovation, it could be one that emerges, as you say, from biomimetic systems, it could be from the world of fungi, etc. But to create new types of materials, new technologies, new processes for manufacturing that can make an impact globally and, and connect those with a real design sensitivity as well that's emerging from that. Exciting times ahead. Do you think we also need to do some things to change the way consumers think and their attitudes to it? You know, we're, we're, you know, we're all about to emerge into the world as the 
pandemic, if not coming under control, at least we're now learning to live with it as vaccines have made an impact. And obviously, one of the first things that people are going to do is go out uh, and start acquiring uh, a fresh new wardrobe as they're probably pretty fed up with being on Zoom calls and wearing what they've been wearing. <laughs> what do we need to do, do you think, at a kind of consumer level as well? And what can we do as academics and, uh, and designers to, uh, to, uh, to help that? I think one of the, the mysteries of the fashion industry and, and kind of the, the glamour and the magic is a lot of stuff is hidden behind the scenes, isn't it? We're not open. Traditionally, I remember when I was working in industry and um, when we'd send things to the mill, we, the mill wouldn't tell us who the other people whose work was being made in the mill. And if something got sent to you from them by accident, they'd be utterly horrified. I think we need to open the doors and open the factories and have full transparency so people can actually see what's going on. And also just the magic. You know, I always show my students, you know, videos from inside factories. We go on factory visits when we can. Watching, watching a fabric being woven on a, a loom is just, to me, is a magical experience. It's, it, it's quite unlike anything else to watch something kind of emerge in that way. And it's really having that kind of cultural literacy to understand where our industry has come from, what the heritage processes of the industry are. So it's really thinking about the thousands and thousands of years of practice and our, our, our material understanding and how precious that material is and really kind of shifting away from a disposable sort of culture. And it's really interesting because um, I don't know if you saw, but the Ellen MacArthur Foundation predicts that clothing resale will be bigger than fast fashion by 2029. And you know, they're very, their methodology is always sound. They're very, um, they don't make big statements unless they can back them up. And I was absolutely astonished by that figure. And so I think consumers are, are starting to get the message. Not every consumer, of course, but actually what you need is you need a percentage to change their behaviors. And it, it kind of models, it creates like a leverage point, doesn't it? If we're thinking in systems theory and feedback loops, just having people behave in a slightly different way. Because we have to remember, of course, our students are too young to remember this, but I'm old enough that I remember this, that fast fashion isn't, hasn't always been with us. Fast fashion is a very recent cultural phenomenon. And if we design fast fashion, we can undesign fast fashion and we can make it responsible fashion. I suppose, again, places like the Royal College of Art and, and de Montfort and the, the leading universities, particularly in the, the worlds of art and design, are the, are the ones who are inventing the future, but they're also inventing the future narratives. Yeah. That, that kind of, the, the role of, of, of design is to create new value in society. The world of the arts is to create meaning. Absolutely. As well as that. And, and, and so creating a new story is something which is very powerful. Now, a story can be the world of fast fashion, but a story can also be one of longevity, of reuse, of reutilization, of repair, of customization. Do you think this, you know, if we think of the kind of the front end part of the world of fashion about its distribution and its marketing and the way we consume, there's things we can do there to accelerate that move. I, I mean, you know, instead of having secondhand clothes, I now have vintage. Well, I think personally, those who can see me <laughs> online would know that I am pretty vintage in every sense. But um, do you think there are things that we can be doing there to encourage that, you know, greater longevity of ownership, greater longevity of use, that reuse, that repair, that customization, that upcycling into new things? And, and what kind of examples might there be of that? Yes, absolutely. I think part of the, the key thing that consumers need, and you know, I, I don't even like to think of them as consumers. I like to think of them as agents for change. We can consume and just eat and eat and eat in that kind of consumption model, or we can change things and we can, we can have a, an agency. And I think it's really important that we have um, communication and 
the way that we share information as humans is we talk and we tell stories. And I think we need much more in the way of storytelling and understanding where we've come from, where we're going, you know, what are some of those exciting new applications of technology, but also what are some of the ways that we used to do things? And this is always what's fascinating if you take students into um, an archive or you take them into a, a lecture, which is about, you know, how, how clothing was made in the 19th century, how clothing was made in the 18th century. That sense that everything was bespoke, there was almost no waste. Clothes were designed to be disassembled and reassembled. If you had something that was very precious, such as a really beautiful piece of handmade lace, because of course everything was handmade or hand embroidery, that paddle was designed to, to be removed, to be laundered, to be put back on the, another garment. So you'll frequently see Regency dresses with you know lace or embroidery, which from much earlier periods. And it's kind of really starting to think about the inherent, where our clothes come from, who have touched our clothes along that journey? What are their stories? What are those garment workers' lives like? And if we we have to really embrace and we have to understand that the unfortunate history of our industry is, is the history of the colonial era, is the history of slavery, it's the history of dehumanization. So it's really, we're perpetuating some of those awful old colonial acts by having a kind of transactional relationship with nature where we, we extract from nature and we, we think of humans as resources and we extract from them by driving down prices, by driving down wages. And we, we just cannot continue to do that. And we have to tell those stories about this is what happens in our industry. This is what happens everywhere in our industry, not just abroad. It happens in the UK, it happens in Europe, it happens in North America. But these are also some of the capacities of this industry to do um, good in the world. And I like the, you know, one of the stories I, I tell my students is the idea around uh, cosmopolitan localism. So how do we, how do we invest in our local communities? How are we not only humans in our local communities, but how are we, how are we people? And it's really thinking about how we are intertwined, our community, our connection. We have a sense of belonging to the local area, but we're also looking at global issues. And I think that's really important. And I, I just, I continually come back to stories. So one of my um, projects that I do with my first years is called The Story of a Garment. Tell me the story of your favorite piece of clothes. And we talk about the emotional connection that they might have with that garment, but also who has touched that garment on the way through its production cycle. And it's really interesting how transformative just investigating the supply chain and investigating their own personal values in relation to this are important. So I think consumers do really need to investigate their own values. And I think, are they places that I'm getting my clothes, are they aligned with those values? I think this is a really interesting element here where we're talking about the journey of an industry, you know, and we can go back, you know, three, 400 years um, on this and, and look at, you know, from the beginning of globalization when goods and resources and people were literally being shipped around the world in yeah. order to optimize production. And, you know, 250 years ago with the kind of growth of the middling and then the middle classes to furnish those needs for, um, uh, you know, I often think about the fashion industry and its capacity to kind of monetize anxiety, um, but, uh, but also bring magic. Um, and, and it's that combination of the two which fueled it, but at a tremendous human and environmental cost. Yes. And, and seeing, therefore, the, the, the provenance and the journey of an industry of where it's been. I, I, I love this point that you've just made as well, and I think it's very insightful, which is we, we need to now look and see to what extent are we revisiting that, in fact, reinforcing an old model 
you know, the, the catastrophe of Rana Plaza, where 1,200 more than that died with the collapse of that building. And the idea that a seven-year-old might be making the shoes, that you've got indentured labor or slavery associated with it, yes. are, are things that we've allowed to perpetuate. Meanwhile, there is the provenance of kind of ownership as well. And, and that sense of, but I know literally, I, I remember one of our students, she bought a sheep and then um, her family, I should say, had a farm. This was not in South London or somewhere where she had a, <laughs> a sheep and uh, An elephant and castle. Yeah, well, that would be interesting, a sheep and elephant and castle. And for those of you who are listening internationally, elephant and castle is a very important district just to the south of the Thames of London, in London. Um, but she, she looked at the every aspect of how she could create a garment from this animal. And that would become part of the provenance and the story, everything that it ate and its life and, and, and how that sheep and the, where the wool was dyed and the nature of the dyes and every element of it. I, I'm thinking that we need to kind of create a narrative that's about the narrative, not only of the industry, but of the provenance of each of these items to invest them in it. I, I also think it's very interesting what you just described about value as well. You know, we, we need to look not just at, is this good value to buy because I can buy a T-shirt for you know, £3.50 and it, you know, it's a, I like the color and I'm going to wear it once or even not at all. It was bought yes. therapeutically. Absolutely. And how does that contrast to what is the value that's being created on that journey? Who has captured the value? which is part of the kind of supply chain. And does the, do the values of all of those people in that supply chain and my values come together? Align. Yeah. Do they align? Absolutely. And it's that old thing of the value, knowing the value of, uh, sorry, the price of everything and the value of nothing, isn't it? And it's thinking about materials are not just inert things that we work with. They're, they influence our behavior, you know, our experience of a garment. They have... Um, an effect on the designer as they conceive and produce a, a garment or accessories. You see that with, you know, students, they they hold the threads and they they wrap the fabric and they drape it. So materials have an agency and a value beyond a monetary value. They come from animal, mineral and plant sources. They have inherent properties, performances and abilities for us to tap into interpret. So sometimes it's really understanding, you know, some of the interesting properties of materials. So for instance, flax, which is used to produce linen, enriches the soil. A single rotation of flax every six to seven years can enrich the soil for food crops, as well as capturing 3.7 metric tons per hectare of carbon dioxide um, from the atmosphere. Wool is a carbon sequestration um, fiber. 50% of the weight of wool is carbon. And the way that those materials make us, you know, because flaxes um, and, and wool are both kind of naturally quite antimicrobial, they're, they're naturally breathable. They, they kind of change our behavior as well. So not only are they lovely to wear, but we wash them less frequently. So if we think that a huge footprint of the garment is how we launder those uh, garments in their lives, if we're only washing our woolens like our grandmothers used to, sort of once every, you know, every autumn, we wash all our woolens by hand, we care for them, we spot clean them as we go through the year. That's how, like, you know, a sheep is actually changing how I behave as a human. And it's really interesting to start thinking around, again, it, it comes back to those stories. How do we use the agency you know, they're not static objects, the agency of the fabric and the agency of the fiber and the animal, vegetal, mineral 
in directing our behavior. And designers can tap into that because consumers or agents for change can also tap into that. Now, in, in terms of the kind of coming to the circularity, and um, we were saying that today only 1% of what we wear ends up being recycled. It enters back in. We, we've got to address that other 99%. Now, we can, we can reduce the flow around that system by getting people to keep things for longer, to respect and value what they have, to reorganize their wardrobes and, uh, and what they wear based on the stories to create new levels of value um, as a consequence of that. But in terms of being able to tackle what is coming out the other end, what, what are the steps do you think we could take practically now to bring more circularity, not only into the manufacturing cycle of the materials themselves, but us as consumers, what role can we play? Do we have to change our consumption patterns, demand new things, or do you think there's an opportunity for retailers and distributors to create new models of ownership uh, and acquisition or uh, taking things back like um, you know, the waste electrical and electronic uh, equipment models? What do you think there is a role there? And is there a role for government in that as well? I think, yeah, absolutely. I think there's a role for everybody. I think when we're looking at, you know, some of the stakeholders and people who are involved in this, we're looking at industry, we're looking at regulatory powers, whether that's kind of um, voluntary regulations, such as signing up for Textiles 2030, uh, the, you know, the Waste Recovery Action Plan, industry-wide initiative in the UK, whether it's things like the EU taxonomy, which sets out um, definitions of sustainable and environmental practices and what those mean. So as a way of kind of anti-greenwashing. It's really thinking about all of those different stakeholders working towards this. Um, and as consumers, I think fundamentally it comes back to transparency. We can't fix what we don't know. We have to know where things come from, who's making them, what is the factory like? You know, would, could we go on Google Maps and look at the factory and look at their waste outputs? Could we look at their water outputs? You know, in a responsible company, you know, going back to this, um, this discussion that we're having about you know, perpetuating colonial inequalities. Um, a lot of our industry was kind of pushed abroad because the environmentally polluting um, approaches that were taken were outlawed in this country. So rather than innovate and change them, outsourcing happened and offshoring happened. So it's really about um, thinking about all these different key stakeholders involving in problem solving at a local level for a global um, problem solving approach. So if we think through some of those stakeholders, we can think of um, the kind of the, the investment banks, those that are kind of channeling in investment from high net worth individuals, corporations, institutions. Clearly, there's been a huge shift towards ESG uh, investments, environmental, sustainable, good governance. And obviously, if companies don't meet those criteria, they're not going to get that investment. So there's obviously incentives for the big players who are seeking investment to do those kinds of things. There, there, there's clearly this kind of move, I think, by government that we're beginning to see, but I think we have to kind of vocalize and bring that forward much more. There are the companies who we're saying, um, you know, as they look at the environmental impact, their consumers are asking questions. They're asking about their environmental, um, I mean, we've got kind of values driven, not just value driven consumption taking place. Mm -hmm. right now. Yes. So there is obviously a role for that as well. You know, and, and then there's the, 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 the role of the, the designer 
in this, in, in, in who has to be someone who has that capacity to be able to think systemically, examine the, the story and, and show how they can create more value both for their clients and the people that their clients serve as well. I mean, have you got any particular areas of, of advice, of key initiatives you would like to see that could aid this transformation, either by government, by the investment community, in terms of consumers, in terms of retailers, in terms of manufacturers? Are there, are looking at some of those stakeholders, who do you think we could, <laughs> we could get to do things differently in? Can, can this podcast today start something off? Can we <laughs> start a revolution? Um, well, I think people follow the money, don't they? And what we're seeing is seeing a huge global investment in the financial industry. So in the last 18 months, two years, what we've seen is corporate bonds being issued specifically for the um, circular economy. And the, the value of that, you know, these are, these are huge uh, banks, these are Rabobank, uh, Goldman Sachs, Societe Generale, uh, Morgan Stanley. These are huge investment companies seeing the monetary potential of the switch to circularity. And it's really what we what we don't have is we don't have any kind of standardized definitions. We've got lots of different ways of measuring. We've got things like the, you know, the HIG index. We've got lots of different kind of tools and different um, initiatives, such as the I mentioned earlier, the RAP. Textiles 2030, which is an um, initiative designed to support the fashion and textiles uh, sector moving towards circularity in the UK. But some of the definitions are, are, kind, of, are kind of loose. If we look at some of the um, ISO um, standards, some of the definitions are a little bit generic. So I think it really does need a, a consortium of industry, academia, consumers, NGOs, trade unions, people who have a vested interest in having um, a safe and healthy working environment, a good working environment for the employee and the, the worker in the industry. Because it's really important that we not only stop things being bad, that we make a fashion industry for good, a fashion industry that can have a, a good force in the world is 2% of global GDP. We have so much potential to create this incredibly um, supportive, caring industry. I know people don't like the kind of soft, woolly feeling sometimes, but an industry where we love our workers, where we want them to be happy, where we want them to have the opportunity to have a good living, to buy medicines and send their children, particularly their girls, to school and have all the things that we take for granted as opportunities for them. And there's no reason why we can't do that. Claire, you know, I, mean, I think what we, we've seen today for our audience, so whether you're a, a young designer thinking about, you know, how you can make an impact, whether you're a, a company that is looking and to say, how can I stay current with where the markets are moving? How can I move to a more values-based economy, not just one that's based on value and the creation or extraction of value? but one that lives by its values for society, for the environment, for the consumers we are, are supporting. But also, if, if you are government, you can look at this and say, what is it that I can do? And I think, Claire, you put your finger on it very smartly here. It, it, it is an industry that brings so much joy and magic to so many people, but it should be an industry that all of us can enjoy because its values from the world of production and extraction are based on circular principles. It's an economy that's based on values, not solely value. And it's responding to a kind of values-led consumption model that's emerging. 
from it. So um, as governments and as manufacturers, as designers, as consumers, we, we need to get together to uh, transform our industry together. And I think that uh, that certainly is something that you will hear much more about through some of the other programs in this series too. Claire Lepiniere from the Montfort University. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series. Look out for more podcasts in the series or subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And if you want to stay up to date with all things UK Pavilion, links to our social media channels can be found in the episode description.